O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. The classic book, uh, Moby Dick. Maybe some of you have read it. Maybe it was a high school required reading list read for you. Herman uh, Melville, classic book of about Captain Ahab, who is a self-righteous ship captain full of righteous indignation, and his indignation is towards a whale, Moby Dick, this great elusive whale that keeps uh, avoiding being killed by these boatmen. And there's this scene, as there are many in the, in the book, where they're pursuing Moby Dick, and all of the, the uh, sailors are on the boat, and they're going after this whale, and it's turbulent. There's storms on the seas. The waves are rising. The sailors are working constantly. They're, they're toiling towards this goal of killing this whale. And you, know, you, you see the chaotic scene and you recognize that there's more going on here in a literary sense than just like, oh, this is a, a tense moment. There's, there's kind of the chaos of the waters, almost like a Genesis chapter 1. There's the primordial chaos and, and there's the, the fight of good and evil and what should be done. And, Kahab, and Captain Ahab bent on his destruction. And all of these people working towards this end. And the way that Melville writes this scene, he shows us that there's one person in the scene who is not doing anything. There's one person sitting in the bow of the boat. He's not moving. He's not rowing. He's not straining. In fact, if you were to look at him, you would think he looks positively lazy. So you wonder, is this like the worst sailor ever? (laughs) Is he the one who's opting out? And no, this is the most important person for this expedition. It's the harpooner. He sits and he waits while the chaos and the toil goes on around him. He's quiet. He's the one who's actually going to throw the spear to kill the whale And as he waits, Melville gives us this amazing sentence to describe him. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. You see what he's saying? To ensure that the harpooner can do what he's supposed to do to actually be ready to throw the dart, to kill the whale, He alone must be idle before he does it. He must be still. He must be quiet. Otherwise, he will not be able to do the very thing that he's been called to do. He needs the quiet. He needs the concentration in order to do it. And we who believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ should know something about this approach to life. It's the Psalm 131 approach, the calm and quiet soul. Why? Because we know, 
We preach that the gospel is good news to us not because we have something to accomplish or something to achieve or something to toil towards and unlock in life. The most important thing about us is not what is earned or toiled after. The most important thing about us is what's given as a gift to be received in quiet and in rest. To rest from our accomplishments is actually the starting place of the Christian life. To rise almost out of idleness to do the tasks that God's given us. Isaiah 30 tells us, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Your strength comes from a place of quiet first. It comes from a God who's already accomplished everything for you so that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we don't have to toil for the most important things. They're given to us. And so let's say that we want to accomplish something spiritually. We want to be the harpooner who actually is effective with the dart. And we are called to be that. We have ambitions and we have responsibilities that God's given to us. You want to take your shot at being godly. You want to take your shot at being a good father, about being a good mother, about being a good son or daughter. You want to love your neighbor as you love as you love yourself. You want to change the world. Maybe the events of this week have made you realize, I need to maybe do something, maybe something political. Maybe I need to work towards something. Maybe I need to say something. And, and you're wondering, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What I want us to see this morning is that the greatest efficiency of the dart, the thing that we start with, is the quiet and calm soul resting in what God has done. It is the greatest way that we can achieve it because it begins not with us, but with Him. And most of us do not do this well, of course. Most of us approach life with a kind of frantic toil trying to figure out what it is that we can do first and then we figure out if it's the best later. Maybe we work in a high-pressure environment Maybe we feel like there's lots of pressures around us telling us we need to do certain things, perform in certain ways. But whether that's true or not, I think many of us struggle actually more with the raging seas that are inside of us. The uncertainties that we need to solve our problems. We need to make sure that we're doing the right things. We feel the need to prove ourselves to other people. We need to be right and true and faithful. And what often arises in us is what we might call a word that's really great but is seldom used, disquiet. A disquiet can settle over us. What does that mean? Well, when we use dis as a prefix before a word, it usually means a reversal of whatever it is that you're saying. So to disbelieve in something means to reverse your belief in it. But disquiet, you would expect it to mean the opposite of quiet, it would be to be loud. And so if something is disquieting, you would expect it would be a loud noise. But that's not what it means. In fact, it means something internal. To be disquieted by something is to feel uneasy, to feel anxious, to feel unsettled. And there's kind of a recognition there 
that what happens inside of us is almost like voices that speak, do this, don't do this. And disquiet can come and make those voices all confused. Certainly, it's the best word to use to describe maybe how many of us felt this week. The events happening around us that we feel like we couldn't have control over, maybe on Wednesday as you saw the news stories, you saw people in our capital. It's disquieting. It's one of the best ways to describe it, at least in my experience. And we need the balm of Psalm 131 to be received as a gift. These three verses give us a model for prayer that quiets our soul. As one writer says, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It takes a long time to learn how to be quiet and to actually trust and depend on God. And so I want to talk about that today. How do we open ourselves to the gift of a quiet soul? How do we actually do this? Using this psalm as a model for prayer for us, I want us to see that there's two things that we need to release, and there's two things that we need to embrace. If we're going to have a quiet soul, if we're going to receive this gift from the Lord offered to us, there's two things we need to release and two things we need to embrace. Very simply laid out for us in these three verses. The first thing that we need to release is that we release pride. Releasing pride leads to a quiet soul. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. This is talking about pride. A heart that's lifted up and eyes that are raised up. That pair in Scripture comes up all the time. The heart and the eyes. And usually it refers to sinfulness or in particular the sinfulness of pride. The heart and the eyes. And it makes sense when you think about it. The heart and the eyes are the two places, the two locations where pride swells in us. Inside, we know that feeling of, I'm proud, I feel proud. That's what the the Bible calls the heart. But also, pride is seen in the eyes. When you look at someone and they seem to be withholding something from you, or they seem to have something over you, you can tell it by looking at their eyes. And it's a horrible feeling to look at someone who is being prideful, isn't it? It's a, it just turns the stomach to see someone with haughty eyes, especially someone you know and you love who's being haughty towards you. You just hate that. And there's a reason why you hate that. It's because God hates it. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us there's six things that the Lord hates, even seven the Lord cannot look on. And what's number one? Haughty eyes. Or a proud look, you might translate it. God hates that. Don't we hate that? Isn't that the most infuriating thing when you see someone hold something over you with their eyes? But this passage is not primarily talking about how we experience others with, with, uh, with their pride. It's talking about how we lower our eyes and how we lower our heart. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. The point is, Pride is the first way that it's the first path towards disquiet. Why? Because when we're preoccupied with ourselves, when our eyes are raised and our hearts are raised up, then there's all kinds of things that we have to feed. 
to make sure that we're still better than other people, that we're still the best, or at least better than that person, that we are still on top of our game. You have to make sure that others are thinking of you in certain ways. You have to make sure that you keep up appearances. You have to make sure that your skills are sharp enough. You have to constantly reassure yourself that you are at the top, or at least however you have defined the top. And it leads to a lot of soul noise. Loud. The psalmist says, I release the pride. He prays that way to lower his heart and his eyes. He releases pride. The second thing he releases is he releases complexity. And this is another gift. In the second part of verse 1, it says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The gift here is that of simplicity. And we all know that one of the reasons why our souls have so much noise is because there's too many knots tied up within us. Too many things that we don't understand. Too many things that we can't predict. Too many futures laid out for us. And we don't know which path will be ours. We don't understand what's going to happen in our lives. And we know this. If you were to ask any of you, you know, do you admit that there are things in your life that you won't understand and that you can't predict? Everybody would say yes, but when something moves in, when that happens, then we're like, we raise our hands and we just act like we're surprised. Whereas we pray in Psalm 131 like this, that's not where I live. I don't live occupying myself with things that I can't control. In fact, it assumes a worldview where there is a God who is in control of things, and therefore one that we live under. And so, that's the thing about believing in God. It's that He's bigger than us. He's outside of us. He is someone that we look to for our dependence and our strength in quietness and in trust, Isaiah says, will be your strength. Not in your understanding. Not in your predictive abilities. I mean, that is the quickest way to a disquieted soul. To spend all of your time thinking and planning for things that you have no control over. Rather than seeing that our life is Godward and that we live only as long as He permits us to live and that we accomplish only what He enables us to accomplish. And we don't spend our energy our enthusiasm towards things that we don't control. There's a gift there, isn't there? A gift of recognizing that my life doesn't have to be as complex as I can mentally sometimes make it be. And so in summary of verse 1, the things that we need to release, we release pride, we release complexity. In a sense, what he's saying there is what the best way to have a quiet soul is to have a proper understanding of yourself. A proper analysis of where you stand in relation to God and others. That you're not that raised up and that you don't understand all of these things. That's the way that we achieve this, is by having a proper understanding and not inflating it. Becca and I still laugh about a sign that we saw like 13 years ago. We were on vacation to a little place called Dauphin Island, Alabama. 
Uh, so there is an island off the coast of Alabama. Many people don't know that. It's a tiny little island. And my family has been there for, for many years, uh, going on vacation, growing up in the south. It was just one of the spots. And we you know, have to drive on a, on a, uh, a bridge to cross over the waters and over onto the island. And we were crossing into it. And one of the little developments there, one of the little commercial spaces, there was a new coffee shop. And um, <laughs> we were driving in and there was a sign hanging on the coffee shop, one of those vinyl uh, signs that was kind of drooping in the middle, you know, kind of like the signs that we put up on our church sometimes. And, um, you know, it's like it looked just thrown together a little bit. And this sign said this, voted best cup of coffee in America. We still laugh about that. It's just like instantly funny. The best cup of coffee in America is in Dolphin Island, Alabama. Population, 1,300. It's like 100 square miles long. And that's where you chose to put the coffee shop, right? If it was truly the best in America, I mean, I'd love to see the sample size on that survey, right? What did you just survey your family? Like, we're all Americans. We're going to vote at the best, the best coffee shop in America, right? It was closed the very next year when we came back, right? Ambition, that's good. They had ambition, but they had no proper assessment of themselves as a coffee shop. It's overinflated. That's a way to destroying a coffee shop. It's the way to destroying a soul. To not have a proper understanding of who you are in relation to God and others. Who are you in relation to God? You are a sinner saved by His grace. You are created first. You are His creature. Therefore, you are under Him. And you are also a sinner, so you've walked away from Him. The proper understanding of yourself begins with that. That, you, that God owes you nothing. And has given you everything. There's no reason for any of us to have lifted eyes and raised hearts before this God. But even as it relates to other people, is it not true that people have different capacities and that there's very little energy and very little reason to spend time proving yourself beyond other people. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, tells us that God gives each of us different levels of capacity for different things. That, that would be meaningless. That parable would be meaningless if that wasn't true. And so, to quiet your soul, you're not looking side to side because you're different than other people and you've been equipped differently. We quiet our souls by releasing pride, releasing complexity, receiving those things as a gift. It's just an amazing thing to, to let those go. But secondly, to embrace a couple of things. Two things that we need to embrace to have a quiet soul. The first one is this. Embrace childlikeness. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You could translate the word calmed there as behaved. I've made my soul behave. It's an active process to behave your soul. Behave it like you behave a child. Teach it to obey. 
In fact, like a weaned child, that image used twice there, a weaned child. It's very specific when you think about it. Very interesting that that's the image that's used to describe the calm soul. It's a weaned child. Two things that we see from this picture that tell us something about having a calm soul with God. What is a weaned child? It's, some, it's a child who is still dependent, but isn't crying for every meal. That's what a weaned child is. The child is still a child, but the child now has learned to eat solid food. And so you have a mixture of dependence, still a child, but also trust. It's moved on from some of the elementary things, the milk of this world. So dependence and trust are both there. That's what childlikeness is. A, de- a dependence is necessary for a calm soul. Just like a child who needs his parents, even a weaned child needs parents. And isn't it interesting that that's the image that's used? Couldn't you imagine it being different? I have calmed and quieted my soul like a wise old man is my soul within me. Like a mature person. Why a weaned child? Because a weaned child is still dependent. This is the consistent image of the Scriptures for biblical maturity. Moving towards a child-likeness. On the one hand, we're to grow up into Christ. Paul says to grow up into every way in maturity. He also talks about giving the milk to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about, you weren't ready for solid food. I just gave you milk while I was there. The author of Hebrews says that, that we should move on from the milk to the solid food, the solid meat. That there is a maturity that happens. There's a growing up that happens. But all that is still keeping us as children. We're still God's children. That's more of the image that we're given in Scripture. In fact, it's the model that Jesus uses for being in the kingdom of God. In fact, it's not just an optional thing. It's a necessary thing. That you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be as children. So children are used as the model of faith, not the exception to faith in the Scripture. You must become like one. Why? Because you are a child of God and you stay dependent on Him no matter how much you grow. No matter how much you mature, you're still like a weaned child when you're at your best. Still dependent. But at the same time, trusting in Him. Still dependent. A weaned child is still a child, but the child is weaned. And what does that mean? It means that the child is not screaming for every meal. That's the only way a baby can let you know that they need food, is by crying. But at weaning, when a child is weaned, that's when the trust comes in, isn't it? It's when a child learns, I have food waiting for me. I don't have to scream for it. My meals come from my parents. That's what children believe in good families. My children don't say to us, will you be providing dinner tonight? Or should we, you know, pull up our bootstraps and make some industry in the world and uh, start providing for ourselves? That's never happened. 
What do they say? They don't say, are you providing dinner? They say, what's for dinner? They already know that they're included. And that trust is also built. That's a key to the quiet soul. It's, it's not just dependence, like, oh, I know I need you. It's, I actually trust that you're going to give me what I need. So weaned child. And just like children are weaned at different times, so we too are grow at different rates. And at various times, what we're seeing here is the gift, the possibility of a life where you're not just calling out to God all the time in fear and distrust of Him, but you have a quiet trust. How many of us, when affliction comes, we forget the fact that God has provided for us in every case in the past. That He's brought us through whatever it is that we've been needing. And so we return to the image of the child. Dependent, yes, but also trusting. Also knowing where this meal comes from. In the silence, in the quiet, is where we can evaluate ourselves and our actual faith in God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, he said, Quietude, which some men cannot abide because it reveals their inward poverty, is a palace of cedar to the wise. For along its hallowed courts, the king and his beauty deigns to walk. I might say it just a little differently, not to improve on Spurgeon. But I would say, it's not just that some men reveal their poverty by being in the quiet, and others have the palace of the wise. I would say that everyone goes through the poverty of silence to then find themselves in a place of trust with God. Being quiet reveals inward poverty it shows us how much am i still like an unweaned child i'm still crying out every time every time god has provided but every time i keep thinking that he's not going to but he walks in this beautiful spacious place in the quiet and we can learn to depend on him to not just be tossed about by our distrust. We embrace childlikeness. The second and final thing that we embrace is that we embrace hope. Verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This seems like one of those verses at the end of a psalm. You kind of move past. Throw away verses. But in fact... It grounds everything in the psalm. And it shows us what kind of quiet God is inviting us into. We're not talking about the quiet of self-improvement. We're not talking about Zen Buddhism. We're not talking about a free-form self-actualization of the self. We're not talking about just improving our life by being quiet. We're not talking about just lowering our blood pressure. By being still, we're not just talking about the most effective way to live your life, even though many of those things that I just mentioned are beautiful benefits, side benefits of following God into the quiet. Good things. The purpose is not any of those things, though. It's to root ourselves in the hope of the Lord. As David wrote this psalm, he's believing in a future hope of the Lord. Hope in the Lord. 
For whatever disquiet you have, hope in Him. The future is bright with Him. The future is good. We put our hope in Yahweh, the Lord. And we can see this morning in the historical place where God's put us and to look at this psalm, look back at this psalm and to look forward to our future hope of, of heaven and see that we still live by the hope of the Lord. And that hope has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This is who David looked forward to, great, David's greater son, greater Lord. It's Jesus Christ. And that hope in Jesus is actually the reason why we can be quiet and still before the Lord. Scriptures tell us that He was anguished in His soul. That He was burdened as He went to the cross. And that He bore our guilt and our sin. So that our souls need not be in anguish and we not be burdened and we not be found guilty by God. And so He purchased with His blood the possibility of our quieted souls. What screams louder inside What is more disquieting than the fact that we walk away from the God who has made us and redeemed us? Our sinfulness, our inability to live under His law is a loud voice telling us you are unworthy. You are not allowed at this table. But in Jesus, that gift was purchased at great cost so that we can be quiet and actually find hope and rest in God because He has paid for it all. And so, all of this comes together in Christ and it all, as St. Augustine said, ends in prayer. What we're given is a model here for prayer. How do you have a calm and quiet soul? I suggest to you, that this could be an easy thing to remember, a four-part prayer. If Psalm 131 tells us anything, it tells us that it need not be long. It can be something that can be said and then returned to. When you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling like the, the seas are just everywhere around you, you can return to this to calm and quiet your soul. How? By praying first, that God would release you from your pride. What are the things in my life that keep me busy with protecting my image and with working and laboring and toiling? Can I release those to You, Lord? That You release complexity. What are the things that are tying me up in knots at night that I can't stop talking about? Can I release those to You, Lord? What, what do I embrace? I embrace childlikeness. Will you bring me back to dependence? I've been acting like I can do this on my own. Will you bring me back to trust? I've been acting like you haven't provided for me in the past. Will you bring me back so I can embrace hope? Not put my hope in other things. Not really believe that a new stage of life or a new possession or a new whatever will actually give me what I want to give and actually calm and quiet the soul within me. It won't. What will calm and quiet me ultimately is the hope that God will redeem me and redeem this whole earth. I have a hope that is beyond any circumstantial thing. It can be a simple, short prayer. 
can be returned to over and over again whenever you feel anxious or you feel like you don't know what to do in this world. Nothing I said about this passage should be taken to mean that we are to be inactive in the world. That we only are quiet. What kind of a harpooner would you be if you never threw the dart? You have to work. There are responsibilities. There are things that Christians are called to do to love neighbor. To work hard. There are things that maybe are required by this strange season that we find ourselves in where we don't know what to do, but maybe we're called to do something. Certainly we are. The question is not, are we supposed to do something or not do something? It is the whole approach. The greatest efficiency of the dart comes from the idleness first of the harpooner. And we are the harpooners that God has placed on these tumultuous seas. And the greatest efficiency, the greatest starting point for us to do something is for us to recognize that in quietness and trust will be our strength. It's found in God first. Then we rise to action. But it will be different for us than for many people who are rising now out of action to action and toil. Trying to do something, but ultimately showing that their trust is in something else. Our trust is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. We quiet ourselves and trust in Him and then He calls us out to take our shot at whatever it is that He's given us to do. Let's pray.